and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub. Series 8, Session 7. It's Thursday the 10th of March 2022. Welcome back. And this session is titled Accessing Oral Antiviral Therapy for COVID-19 Part 2. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. We recognise their diversity, resilience and the ongoing place that First Nations people hold in our communities. We pay our respects to elders both past and present and commit to working together in the spirit of mutual understanding, respect and reconciliation. Uh, we support self-determination for First Nations peoples and hold um, and organisations and we'll work on closing the gap. Well, happy International Women's Day or week, everyone. Uh, this year's theme is changing climates, equality for a sustainable tomorrow. Um, you'll also have seen it's got that breaking the bias hashtag, but um, that was the official UN theme. And it invites us to celebrate the work of women and girls uh, working to change the climate of gender equality and build a sustainable future. Uh, for me personally, this community of practice um, that we've built locally using the ECHO platform represents some of these values in action with uh, striving to create a quality of voices and perspectives. And um, I think in its uh, crisis response, um, you know, thinking about sustainability through collective action. Um, over the past two years, we've come together as a collection of diverse stakeholders, all investing, invested in supporting our community and our colleagues against a health threat and social crisis. We've engaged in a respectful dialogue uh, that seeks to include grounded experiences of the perspectives of, um, of, 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 sorry, the grounded experiences and the perspectives in a systems focus and solutions orientated way. Each, work we, each week, we work with top-down knowledge, the policies and evidence, inform guidelines, and we consider the bottom-up and real-world experiences of our community and of all of its members. And we think about how we as frontline workers, the middle level sometimes feels like we're the meat and the sandwich operators, can best bring about uh, a service that will enable safe, targeted and equitable service provision, systems thinking, participatory learning, collective action. Now, I'd like to add sustainable to that, um, but while I believe our local response has been dynamic, agile, and demonstrates resilience, without significant broader systems change, I fear it won't be sustainable. We won't be able to describe this as sustainable. And now as we settle into this pause between waves, we are afforded the luxury of casting our thoughts and visions further along the horizon uh, beyond perhaps our local community experiences. And we'll no doubt be tuning in to the distress of those displaced by floods in New South Wales and Queensland and those in the Ukraine displaced by war. And so fresh from an experience that had us all in this together, we'll no doubt be tuning into these disasters with a new frame of reference. A frame that confronts us with the reality that disasters don't just happen uh, to other people out there because we've been through one in here. Uh, so perhaps it's dawning on many of you at this time that there's no longer a sense of going back to our old life anymore because everything's kind of changed. Um, so I put to you the question um, that my guest, disaster researcher, Professor Lisa Gibbs, put to me in a, in, in a recent podcast that I did uh, for Melbourne Uni. As a key question we face uh, in the recovery of pandemic, this pandemic crisis is how do we restore an everyday life we value? And I also put to you a simple request this week. Um, you know, I think we need to acknowledge the work that we've all done in getting ourselves to this state of this um, crisis. So take the time and acknowledge your colleagues, celebrate a woman or girl in your life who you recognise as contributing to the building of an equitable and sustainable future. And let's continue these conversations, um, perhaps reflecting on some of these themes over the coming weeks and months as we consider how we're going to be supporting our workforce um, through the next time. But today, I digress, of course, the sessions focused very specifically on um, putting into practice the work of accessing antiviral therapies in Western Victoria, the who, what and how. Um, I've put up a slide, though, just uh, to reference. Um, uh, this is uh, from the Australian Disaster Recovery Institute, and I think it, it demonstrates some of the actions that we bring into life. And so I guess the things that I've been reflecting on in the last few weeks as we start to make that gear shift is how do we take some of the um, successes of this community of practice forward into the future, um, both in uh, as we're heading into winter, as we're thinking about other emerging infections, um, looking at the shadow pandemic recovery, workforce burnout issues, um, and some of those other catch-up care needs. And, and, and what kind of conversations do you guys want to be having, I guess, is the invitation and the request.
But let's get underway. I'm Bianca Forrester, GP. I'm facilitating today's meeting alongside Whitney and Fiona. Um, thanks to our participants from the Western Vic region for tuning in. Thanks for introducing yourself in the chat. And welcome to anyone observing from outside of the Western Vic PHN. We welcome you. Um, so welcome to our panel this morning. I think we know what uh, our etiquette's all about. We love to see your faces. Um, we publish this as a podcast and a video, um, but we don't continue, we don't include these conversations. Now, we love your cases and vignettes. I'm, I'm feeling like I need to hear from you guys and, and what you're currently puzzling. So reach out in any way that you want. It could be sending me a case or us a case, a vignette, or even some questions. Um, our inbox is a little quiet at the moment. Next week, we've got Immunology 101. Uh, we'll revisit just in case we need to. Oral antivirals, if we still feel a bit insecure after this morning's session, or we could look at another ID topic. Let us know what you're interested in hearing from um, Caroline. And then we're going to round up the series with looking at testing for COVID, the rats, the stats, the PCRs and the serology, um, so that we know what was happening as we go forward, perhaps even talking about um, other multiple or multiplex PCRs and things. Then we'll take a break for the holidays, and I'm keen to kind of hear what you're thinking um, you'd like to hear about as we move into the next uh, three months. All right, our agenda for today, Kate Graham's going to, um, you all know Kate, she'll um, provide us with a pandemic response update, the policies and the guidelines and talk about um, the knowledge and pathways around accessing oral antiviral therapy. Um, Jeff Urquhart, um, GP at Bowen Remote Patient Monitoring, Monitoring and GPLU, you all know Jeff, he'll talk about accessing therapy in Bowen Southwest and also uh, Echo Regular, Dr. Alison Miller, GP at Ballarat at Helm and GPLU at Ballarat Health Services will also talk about this in the Ballarat region and surrounds and provide us with a case vignette that we're going to put uh, into practice to kind of test out our decision-making pathways. And this is Linda's last session of giving us the uh, PHN update. I'm going to try to throw, throw to Linda with a little bit more generosity than usual. <laughs> I'll try and give you five minutes, Linda. Um, and so thank you so much for being with us. And uh, I think, again, it represents that shift that Linda's now being able to move back to some of those other functions that perhaps have had to be sidelined by the pandemic. Um, but we welcome Naomi White, who will be stepping in for Linda from here on in as the COVID positive care um, pathways manager. Um, we welcome Dr. Avindya Amili, um, Infectious Disease uh, Registrar at the Public Health Unit at Bowen Health. And um, thanks for being here. Uh, Arvind's here to scoop up any of those um, questions that we might have around oral antivirals. So we'll get underway. Over to you, Kate. Good morning, everyone. And just as a bit of a change, I thought we were all a bit bored of COVID. Um, I didn't ever imagine that 11 years ago when I was doing my master's of public health and tropical medicine, that tropical medicine would come to me. Um, but we wanted to sort of just give you a bit of a heads up about the Japanese encephalitis um, outbreak around Australia at the moment. Um, just to sort of have that in the back of your minds. It's not common at present, but it is something that is emerging and that we need to be aware of. Um, so in terms of the life cycle of Japanese encephalitis, um, I've put a little picture at the top there, which is like the soccer ball picture, just because in the um, graphic image, it makes it look a lot more like COVID, which it's not. Um, so it lives, it's a virus that um, is mainly hosted by pigs and migratory water birds, which is probably how it made its way down from the far north of Australia, which is the furthest south that it's ever been seen before was sort of really at the bottom of Cape York. Um, but now it's been found in Queensland, in sort of Southern Queensland, Victoria and New South Wales. Um, it's also hosted by pigs. Humans and horses and to a lesser extent cows are dead end hosts. So we're a bit useless to the virus. Um, it doesn't prefer us, but that doesn't mean that it won't infect us. Um, we don't amplify it. So we do have pig farms of concern in our region currently, um, in the Wimmera region and in Colac. Um, we've got a vaccination program um, that will commence in some areas and the PHM will be involved in assisting GPs in those regions to roll out those vaccines, particularly to pig farm workers being the main targets at the moment while vaccine supply is limited. Um, so 
as we go forwards with any other infectious disease, we will wait for more information. I know that there are a few people going to a meeting today about this um, with the department. So I'll just take you through quickly, just a brief overview of Japanese encephalitis. So the majority of cases are asymptomatic, but if people develop encephalitis, it's really nasty. 30% chance of death, 30 to 50% chance of permanent severe neurological disability. Um, and there are risk factors that you need to look out for in people, which are sort of contact with those inland waterways, particularly around the Murray, work or contact with pigs, outdoor work, um, and leisure activities with a high risk of mosquito bites. So it's all the people who went camping along the Murray, who are going camping along the Murray for the long weekends um, or camping around other areas. Um, they're sort of flags to have in the back of your head if you get a presentation. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So symptoms to watch for, and this is what I really wanted to flag because we've been so COVID focused over the past two years really that it's often that sort of danger of that um, narrow focus that we don't think beyond that. So if you've got somebody presenting with fever, headache, vomiting, uh, particularly that rapid onset, um, we know that with Omicron, we're seeing a lot of gastro-related illnesses and it's sort of having that wider thought pattern, um, particularly when it's severe. Febrile seizures um, in children, we often sort of think of as part of some childhood illnesses but that's something else to sort of watch out for. Um, and confusion, drowsiness, focal neurology, and you really can't distinguish it clinically from other CNS infections. It's a pathology diagnosis um, on serology or those kinds of things. So if you're suspicious, don't investigate in a primary care, transfer, seek urgent infectious diseases advice and support. Um, if you are working in an emergency department, urgent care setting, hospital setting, um, the latest health advisory has a really good sort of outline of the specific tests that are required because there is as tests that are different to when you're investigating for other um, arboviral infections and there are specific specimens and specific transport requirements where you've got to send it to um, so that you get the answers quickly. So I've just gone to the next slide. So the advice for patients is probably where our role as GPs will sit alongside that sort of having it at the back of our heads if we get presentations. There's a good Better Health Channel fact sheet um, that's available. Um, really, it's a bite avoidance advice. So if you're spending time outdoors at long, loose clothing so you can't be bitten through it, DEET um, or Picardin um, anti-mosquito sprays or um, creams, DEET, we know it's safe in children. Um, that's something that the Royal Children's Hospital has a good fact sheet as well on safe um, DEET and mosquito use in kids and avoiding that dust dawn times when there are always mosquitoes around. And there's a really good checklist that's available also on Better Health Channel and there'll be that um, link in the slides when you get out the slide pack. And it's a checklist for reducing your risk at home because most of us will have somewhere at home that mosquitoes will love to breed. If you leave out a bucket of water and it's rained recently, you'll come back a couple of days later and find those wriggling lava. Um, and I don't know for, like I grew up in North Queensland um, and we always had the dengue alerts and the dengue alerts were about making sure that you didn't have water sitting under um, pot plants or all those kind of things. And we had um, John Williamson singing on a TV ad singing, let's get rid of dengue, eh? Um, so that was, that's one of the things that's stuck in my memory in terms of mosquito protection. So we'll just get on to the next slide because I think that, you know, just to have Japanese encephalitis in the back of your minds, but COVID is still very common and we'll move back to where we're meant to be for today. Um, vaccinations, there haven't been too many changes this week. Novavax has been approved for boosters. AstraZeneca advice has changed to be only as a booster if you're not able to have an mRNA booster for some reason. Our priority populations for the third doses, those 40 to 49 year olds are still lagging. The child vaccinations are really lagging as well a little bit and they're not kind of tracking up in the way that we'd expect. Um, so I think that again, part of that role of GPs is reassurance for parents. Um, there's a lot of sort of new um, information coming out and sort of more of a marketing campaign from the state government, particularly 
around getting people in for that vaccination. So I'll just go into the next slide. So oral antivirals. I just wanted to share a little bit of the evidence for you because I was looking in, um, if you have a look in the clinical evidence task force behind every decision that they make, they put a lot of the evidence in the notes. And nematrovia, um, again, I'm not very good at saying the words, I need to hear them more. Um, it was really only studied on its own um, rather than in combination. The theory that it will work in combination is based on the theory that it works on its own. So it had a relative risk reduction of 89.1%, which was good. Um, these were both in group, these studies were both in groups of around 2,000 people. Um, so molnupiravir uh, is a little bit less effective in its relative risk reduction. So its relative risk reduction is 30%. Um, so these are things to keep in the back of your mind. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So the clinical criteria um, in the PBS is what I really wanted to talk about and get into a little bit more depth in today, because this is where some of the confusion has been over the past couple of weeks in terms of that difference between the PBS criteria, hospital criteria and the nursing home guidance. So I'll just outline the PBS criteria so that at least We've got that knowledge in our heads. So it's a, um, it's a streamlined authority. There are different codes and different access criteria depending on your immunocompromise or immunocompetent status and if you identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So the clinical criteria is that a patient must have received a positive PCR test result or that a patient must have received a positive rapid antigen test result verified by a medical practitioner. And that's a really interesting sentence because the test result, testing date, location and test provider where relevant must be recorded on the patient record. So I think in order to sort of say that you've verified a rapid antigen test, that's a really different thing from somebody saying, I've had a positive rapid antigen test. So that's something to sort of also keep in the back of your minds. So I'll just go to the next slide. So in terms of the sort of specific criteria, so adults with mild to moderate COVID confirmed by PCR or medically verified rat and who can start treatment within five days of symptom onset can be prescribed PBS subsidized Ligerio by their doctor if they're 65 or older with two other risk factors. If you're age 75 or older, you only require one additional risk factor because age over 75 is considered to be a risk factor on its own. Or if you identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander origin and are 50 or older with two other risk factors for severe disease, or you're moderately to severe, severely immunocompromised. I really wanted you to focus in on that as moderately to severely immunocompromised because you'll note that the PBS definitions of this are really different to what we've seen in the vaccination definitions of immunocompromised and what we think of in our heads as immunocompromised. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So these are the risk factors and the risk factors in the PBS are wider than the risk factors listed in the clinical evidence task force definitions. And um, they've included a few more things like cirrhosis. And I wanted to flag that reduced or lack of access to high level healthcare and lives in an area of geographic remoteness classified as uh, modified Monash model category five or above. So it's interesting to think of that as a specific risk factor um, rather than a criteria for access. Uh, but in terms of sort of thinking about access, this is something where we may think about giving an oral antiviral if we have it there with us and we know that the patient's on day four of symptoms and to get any other treatment transported down from one of the major centres is going to take over a day. Um, so I'll just go on to the next slide. So the immunocompromise, which you know, the logical things of primary or acquired immunodeficiency and the any significantly immunocompromising conditions um, with medications. So these are all kind of logical things that we know. There's a bigger definition that I kind of cut out half of because it's messing on a slide and nobody really cares until you're looking into it in specifics. So I'll just go on to the next slide. This is where <coughs> I wanted to focus. 
So these are considered under immunocompromised. And this is why I wanted to flag that these are people you may not think of as immunocompromised, but they consider them as very high risk conditions um, under the immunocompromised heading, um, including Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, congenital heart disease, thalassemia, sickle cell disease, and other hemoglobinopathies, or people with severe intellectual and physical disabilities requiring residential care. Now we know that they're not immunocompromised as such, but that's where you find the criteria for listing under the PBS um, for these people in these conditions who may not be in that older age group um, and so may not meet the other criteria for the risk factors, but they've got those very high risk conditions um, and are therefore eligible for treatment. So that's probably the extent of the oral antivirals. COVID positive care, um, I just wanted to flag, we're updating the mosquito-borne diseases in Victoria page at the moment to annotate that we now have a new one in Victoria because um, we thought we'd include it in this page rather than putting it in a separate page of its own for Japanese encephalitis because really um, the assessment is the same there's previously in Victoria, the major arboviral infections um, have been your Ross River fever, Barmer, forest virus. There's been sort of cases sporadically over time of Murray Valley encephalitis. And we know that every so often they pick it up in the surveillance of chickens and chicken farms. These poor chickens have their bloods taken all the time. Um, but also very rarely the West Nile virus as well. And so your West Nile virus, Murray Valley encephalitis and Japanese encephalitis, they're all the flaviviruses and they basically are the three that will cause the encephalitis of a really similar sort of nature to the Japanese encephalitis. So I think having it in the back of your head that the encephalitis presentations or any CNS um, infectious presentation um, we want to check at the moment to sort of make sure that Japanese encephalitis is something that is ruled out. So I think that apart from our usual resources, that's probably all from me for this morning, but I'll be around to answer questions. Thanks so much, Kate. I think we'll send out, um, uh, Whitney and Fee, we might send out our slide deck to, tomorrow, today, tomorrow. Yeah, I think you're probably um, keen to get some of that information. There's a lot. Um, please, if you've got a question of Kate, there, there's a, a bit there. Um, please do start, start sending through questions through in the chat. We'll head across to Jeff in, the, in a moment. And thanks, everyone. I have to say, well, we... Um, signed up for doing this a couple of years ago I didn't know we'd be here for a couple of years so um you know it's really nice to have these moments to celebrate one another I really enjoy that and um hey and I was thinking there's a few musicians here you know maybe one thing that'll energize us going forward if we create an echo band Steve Karen um Anna looking at you um there's another musician who was it someone else is a musician there because I'm thinking that's a catchy title perhaps Japanese encephalitis virus let's get rid of it what was the well anyway it's gonna be hard to put to a rhythm but um musicians I'm counting on you it sounds like Kate needs a new jingle um over to you Jeff uh, yes thanks Bianca and um thanks for the opportunity to present this morning at the echo session this is just a couple of slides that um hopefully give us some clarity around uh, referring patients for uh antiviral therapy into the Barwin model so as I say this is slightly different to the PBS um criteria that we've just had presented. So hopefully this, the nuances um, uh, can, be, can be understood. So for the first slide, sorry, a bit busy, um, but uh, so it probably contains all the info you need to know um, as a GP. So first of all, the risk assessment. So this is for COVID-19 patients with mild moderate symptoms have no oxygen requirement and are within five days of symptom onset. So, so these are the patients that we, um, uh, need to consider. So obviously immunocompromised, pretty obvious group, the unvaccinated. Um, so basically anyone from 65 and older, regard, regardless of um, comorbidities, Indigenous Australians older than um, 35. And then there's that other group, 55 to 65, with one or more medical risk factors that are in the table um, to the right. Um, and pregnant women greater than 13 weeks, regardless uh, gestation with one or more medical risk factors. And then it's also the partially vaccinated ones as well. And I've listed there 
um, that those those um, ones that we would consider. So that's sort of just you're working out the ones that you might like to refer to us for consideration of um, therapy. So then selection of therapy. So, so most of the patients that we see through Barwon would go through the, the Paxlovid um, pathway um, and occasional Sotrovimabs for those who can't take Paxlovid or, or, or pregnant women. So um, uh, next slide, please. So this is sort of the decision aid that we've come up uh, with, with discussion with the public health unit and the um, ID physicians. And this is actually set up by um, the ID registrars. So, so is the patient um, to be considered for oral antiviral therapy? Uh, then um, obviously, you know, Paxlovid is, a, is, the, um, is the oral antiviral of choice, but obviously you need to worry about, um, you know, significant drug interactions, renal function, etc. So if you sort of think you want, um, based on your risk assessment, uh, this patient to have any um, treatment, then you can discuss it with the um, RPM registrar or the ID registrar out of hours and send in a referral to remote patient monitoring. And the details on how to do that will be in the next slide. So, so then we, we get the information um, at Barwon Health, um, either via RPM or an ID registrar, um, um, consultation, and then that then generates the the the, um, the pathway to prescribe the oral antiviral. And as I say, Paxlovid would be our our predominant um, one that we use, and Sotrovimab, uh, as I say, for pregnancy or if there's a contraindication. So if they're not eligible for Paxlovid, as I say, Sotrovimab would be an option. Uh, we can arrange that, although it's much less available nowadays. And obviously, if Sotrovimab's not, not available, then, um, then uh, Molnupiravir. But actually, I don't think we've actually have ever used uh, Molnupiravir in uh, any hospital-referred patients. And one other thing about Molnupiravir, if you're prescribing it in the um, community, talking to the pharmacists, um, they don't actually keep it in stock. It's $1,000 per, um, per packet. So they need 24 hours notice to actually be able to prescribe that in the community. So if patients are day day four of symptoms, then it's getting maybe getting a bit late. So it is available, but pharmacists need to order the drug in. Um, next I, slide, Jeff, please. I'll, could I interrupt you for a second? Sorry, I just wondered if anyone might pop in the chat. Um, Jeff's just raised that it's 24 hours to get it into pharmacy. Kate, you mentioned before that one of the things we might think about is a rural person uh, on day four, we could use molnupiravir, but from what Jeff's saying, we would run out of time. So I'm wondering, are rural areas kind of keep some sort of impressed stock? If anyone knows anything about that, if you don't mind popping it in the chat. Thanks, Jeff. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so really, just to keep it in very simple terms, um, if you uh, want to discuss uh, any of this therapy, there is the um, Bone Health uh, Remote Patient Monitoring Hotline, which is the number there. That's sort of uh, an in-hours number uh, from 8.30 to 5 um, uh, during, the, during the week, Monday to Friday. Uh, so after hours and weekends, then it's um, probably preferable, it's preferable to go via the ID registrar if you've got any questions about prescribing. Um, and then um, if you want to refer, then uh, what we need in the referral uh, is the, the Kramer, which is the bone, which you get that um, document from the Bowen Health uh, Professionals website, the templates area. And um, we need an EGFR um, and also a list of medications and comorbidities. And usually just printing out a health summary from the software will provide all of that. Scan both uh, the uh, Kramer and the, the printout and um, send that to the remote patient monitoring email. So um, what we found is obviously most patients who, who do need um, antiviral therapy also need remote patient monitoring. So, um, so by doing the, the referral for the um, um, antivirals, you're actually also uh, putting this patient up for Bowen Health remote patient monitoring as well. So it sort of does, does both things with the, with the one referral. So, um, so that's probably um, uh, enough from me. Um, so hopefully the process is reasonably straightforward. Look, you know, we're not seeing a lot of referrals come in from GPs. Obviously, when we were doing the um, Zotrovimab only um, process a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're seeing four to six referrals maximum a day, and that sort of dropped off to 
you know, maybe maybe three three a day at the moment. So it's not a, a large number of G, uh, referrals that um, GPs are sending in. And obviously we're also picking up patients through our own onboarding process of um, new positive COVID cases in the community. And we may obviously come across those cases early and, and bring them in for um, um, oral antiviral therapy as well. With the oral antivirals, the patients um, can pick them up from the car park. If they're positive patients, they can come and drive in and pick them up from um, the car park at the back of pharmacy in Barn Health or a family member can pick them up from the pharmacy outpatient area. Um, also, there is a very limited courier service available in the Geelong region to actually deliver um, the oral um, antivirals to a patient's house. So I'm not sure how far that extends out and in more rural areas, I'm not sure we have an exact solution for that at the moment. Um, so that's about, about it for me. So thanks, Bianca. Thanks, Jeff. So pop questions that you've got in the chat for Jeff. Jeff, while I've got you, I just wanted to go back just with Kerry's um, question about um, eligibility. I thought let's run this one through our algorithm. So I guess we start um, with um, the case of someone who might have a severe intellectual disability. Um, they attend residential respite care, but wondering whether they'd meet criteria. I mean, if we look, so if we look at this um, um, chart, where would you see, so Jeff, would you see this person fits within this criteria for Paxlovid so or Citrovimab? So this is a high-risk person and what how old are they? Um, so let's think, um, I mean, here, okay, so medical risk factors, intellectual disability of any severity. Um, so are they vaccinated or unvaccinated? Let's say they're triple vaxxed. So, yeah, basically on our criteria, um, yeah, they don't, they don't meet the criteria. Okay, so then we would look, if we look at your decision algorithm, so if we go to the next one, Fee, um, so they would say they wouldn't necessarily... So they, would, they would fit the, the, the monopiravir then. Monopiravir. And Kate, do you mind piping in? So um, if we think about the, the guidelines that you put forward, so I just wanted to make clear, guys, um, of course, what Kate was saying was that we're looking at the guidelines that Jeff's put forward when we think about monopiravir and citrovimab, but of course, the guidelines for the monopiravir are different. So they come from the, is it the PBAC guidelines, Kate? And under those guidelines, this person, this individual, if they're in a residential aged care setting, would be eligible for molnupiravir. And Kate might be busy. She said, I think it would be around assessment of any suitable alternatives. So are they otherwise eligible for citrovimab? So in this case, they wouldn't be. So if you're not eligible for citrovimab, like if you're thinking about sort of where they're fitting in, if they're if they're meeting some of those PBS criteria as residential aged care plus a risk factor, um, then the residential aged care plus a risk factor plus triple vaccinated um, would not be eligible. Um, it would only be if they were immunocompromised um, in some way. So, because you say in the PBS wording, the wording is just requiring residential care. So, it so that's yeah, yeah. Be open so to that's, interpretation. I guess I'm wondering. What, so the what, residential the care is for disability. There? Yeah. So yeah. they is that I wonder what the risk factor is there. I guess when I think about interpretation, uh, you know, is the requiring residential aged care reflecting a, a a status of the patient, or is it about preventing? Um, you know, severe so the requirement for setting. residential care in terms of your like there's that difference between requiring residential care for a disability um, uh, different to requiring residential aged care for age. So if you're requiring residential care for a disability, you're eligible if you're triple vaccinated um, because that's considered to be a high risk sort of condition. But if you're just requiring residential aged care and you have no other medical conditions, uh, then you aren't eligible if you're triple vaccinated or double vaccinated. Okay, Kerry, does that assist with interpretation of the guidelines? Let us know how that how that is for you in the chat. Um, now, Kate, while I've got you on the line, we're just wanting a few people to um, hear you just describe again the Novavax eligibility. So sorry, uh, yeah, uh, sorry, Novavax, sorry I probably yeah was rushing over it a little bit. Um, so with the Novavax, um, it isn't it isn't TGA approved, but um, it has been advised by ATAGI 
that it's suitable to be used as a booster dose for people who aren't able to have other vaccinations. So I think the groups that I wouldn't be using it in is the people who have elected to wait for Novavax who just didn't want other things. But if you've got people who are unable to take the other vaccines sort of for allergy reasons or um, previous reactions, those kind of things, and you'd had a possibly a conversation with Vixis or something like that about it, then they're maybe the ones that you'd be very comfortable sort of giving that Novavax as their sort of extra dose. So yeah, Lee Meekin reminds us that there's a third vax, dead, third vax deadline coming up on the 25th of March for some employees. So there is some demand at the moment. At the moment, um, when people are fronting up, they're told they need to apply to Vixist um, and the criteria are very stringent. How would you... Um... Well, look, I think that um, if you were not comfortable <laughs> prescribing something that was not... or giving something that was not on the TGA um, and was not TGA approved... Um, I think that's quite reasonable as as an option. Um, but I think given those booster deadlines, if it was for a medical reason and it was for that medical uncertainty as to whether they could have Novavax as a booster or not, um, I would be comfortable in those sort of settings um, in terms of providing that temporary um, booster exemption to allow them that time to attend VIXIS to have that discussion and if you, um, if you had that sort of temporary booster exemption as a time-limited thing, that's, um, that's an option for some people to use in those medical settings, um, not just for the people who have waited for Novavax because they didn't like the other vaccines. Okay. Are we happy with that? crew tell us um, you know any other questions about that and Arvind I noticed you've popped your camera on welcome this morning did you have anything that you wanted to um, say in response to any of these two conversations that we've been having yeah thanks a lot thanks Bianca and thanks for inviting me uh, to join again um, hi everyone um, so yeah I'm Arvind one of the ID registrars at Barwon Health um, yeah it's all uh, very confusing isn't it with the antivirals um, you know, got all these different criteria that uh, we have to kind of make sense of. Um, and obviously Molnupiravir um, has recently been uh, uh, approved uh, on, on the PBS. Um, so I, I guess one thing just um, to note is, yeah, uh, as um, Kate mentioned in her um, talk, the, the PBS criteria is, is slightly different to the state supply criteria. So those, there is um, some, uh, patients who will fall under the PBS criteria that don't meet the state criteria. And, and those patients will obviously be eligible for molnupiravir. Um, the flowcharts that um, uh, Jeff put up um, are regarding the state criteria. Um, so, uh, so, and that, you know, is, is, might be subject to change, but those are the current kind of guidelines that we have. Um, so uh, in that example, patient with a, a severe intellectual disability, um, in the PBS criteria, that actually that they do state that um, intellectual disability is um, regarded as, as one of the immunocompromised conditions. And so if you're above 18 um, uh, with a severe intellectual disability, then you would be eligible based on the PBS criteria, but not on the state criteria. So, okay. so that's, um, uh, you know, those would be... Uh, one of the patient populations that would um, be uh, eligible for molnupiravir via the PBS. Oh, thanks for clarifying. And then that. I guess it becomes about that access point that um, if they were, like one of the things um, with the supply is that um, with the PBS supply, um, you may be able to use those PBS criteria when you're looking at residential aged care um, or some other residential settings where um, stock has been delivered directly to the facility. But apart from that at the moment, until we actually get stock into pharmacies, the PBS criteria is sort of irrelevant um, because we're not going to be able to get it. But it's something to keep in the back of your minds that when it does start appearing in pharmacies, that's, that's sort of something that we need to sort of keep that wider picture in our heads. 
Mm, wouldn't it be good if we could have a stock and replace system? I know I used to do this with um, um, Implanon. I don't know if it probably wasn't, it probably was a bit dodgy, but I used to get an Implanon in stock and when a patient would come, I'd script them, provide them the one I had in stock and use their script to replace so that there was always something in the cupboard. I don't know if pharmacies can do something like that. It seems a pity to have this drug available, but it's going to take 24 hours to grab it when we've only got a five-day window. Maybe there's some um, little bit of innovation or something we might need to do, particularly out in those rural areas to just have something on hand. But anyway, that's just an idea, dropping it in there, cat among the pigeons. Uh, Alison Miller, over to you. Sorry, just need to unmute. Hi, everyone. Um, Alison Miller, GP uh, in Ballarat, but also working in the code monitoring team in, in Ballarat. And as you'll see from my slide, it's very much the same as Jeff's because it's sourced from the same resource. So just uh, different graphics, but the, the same thing. And, and, uh, and it's a bit easier for me being at the back end of this conversation. We've already talked about two different supplies um, or access routes. Um, in terms of patients that come through for us, our, the access to us is uh, everyone uh, in the Grampians region, when they receive a positive test result, if it's a rat, they upload and it's uploaded or they have their PCR, it goes through Trevi and onto a process called um, a database called COVID Monitor. So in terms of uh, BHS at home, we get notified pretty quickly um, through of people who are, you know, medium risk um, or potentially requiring eligible for treatment. But the other thing is, is that if you become, as GPs become aware of patients that might have a positive test and might call, call you first, it's then actually knowing how to contact us and the same contact details that we've had before, but um, I think they're on the, the last slide that Bianca's put up, but the same thing, the, the criteria, and again, the, this criteria that we're showing now came into, um, it came into being two weeks ago. And as Arvinda said, there's a possibility that they'll change again in the next couple of weeks. So this is a this is a flow chart for the week. Um, we, the, the criteria as discussed, we will go through, um, we receive a patient, we'll take a history and actually Bianca, could you go to the next slide? Cause this is the same one that we've already seen. Oh, so uh, can we go to the third one, the third slide? In terms of our decision-making, we'll assess a patient, the same criteria, are they eligible for treatment? And again, we'll do the first assessment will be, are you eligible for Paxlovid? So we will have a, discuss a discussion with the patient. If we've got access to uh, information through the, um, their health record or information from the GP and access to their uh, electrolytes and LFTs, and determine fairly quickly whether there's a clear contraindication to Paxlovid. If not, then what we act do is we actively involved our hospital pharmacists. So we'll, if we think that they're eligible, we also we notify the patient they're gonna get a call from the pharmacist who will then contact them and do a complete best, um, a, a, a really a medication reconciliation and then provide a recommendation to us to say, actually we found something else, which means they can't have Paxlovid or it's, it's all okay to go ahead. So if going back to that, the, the um, box of eligible for Paxlovid, if someone is not eligible quite clearly, then we'll, they're eligible for citrovimab, and so we'll just proceed with that pathway. If um, someone is eligible for Paxlovid, as I said, we'll utilise our pharmacist who will give us some more information. So it's a really, it's a team uh, decision and it does take time. And then we can, if they are eligible, we'll go through a process utilising the pharmacist and ourselves and organise for the patient to have the medication dispensed. We can also, we can work out, it is bespoke, depending on how, what the situation is for the patient is how we get them the medication. Um, we have, it may well be the, uh, um, one of our allied health assistants who's able to drop it out when they drop their monitoring equipment. It may be a family member that can pick it up uh, and we haven't needed to use a, a courier or a taxi service to, to, to do that. And then we also ensure that as they're part of our, um, our monitoring program, we check in with them each day, but also the pharmacist provides, uh, make sure that they do a follow-up call day five and then they can confirm if there's any medications that have been ceased that they're you know, ready to get going and, and, and know when they can actually start those again. So again, our process is really very similar. Um, uh, we're very fortunate. We're actually actively able to engage with the, uh, our, our own pharmacist to help you know, making the decisions in terms of suitability for Paxlovid just because of its complicated nature. If we go back to the slide previously, 
So one of the things that's really handy is actually having access to the, the COVID-19 drug interaction flowchart. So like when we're on the phone to someone, you can actually, it's an interactive tool. This is just a sort of a summary PDF, but you can actually have a chat, ask a quick history, uh, um, do a medication check fairly quickly while you're on the phone and, and pop it in. And if anything, anything comes up as read, then it's you know quite quite easy. Um, if not, then we can we can proceed and get further information. So um, if we can go through to the, the next couple of slides, I think we might have our contact details on the subsequent one. No, sorry, we don't. So um, I'll put them in the chat. We have to, uh, had them previously, but contact initially from GPs if you've got a patient you're uh, concerned about that feels that you've just discovered that they're COVID positive and wherever they are in their treatment course, but believe that they need uh, are eligible for, for treatment under this process then ring us on the COVID Navigator number, which I'll put in the chat. Uh, alternatively, and probably the, the better way is to send us a secure fax. We've got a number that drops into a email, a secure email that's got lots of visibility by lots of people. So we can pick that up and contact the patient and then get, get underway with their, with their treatment. So I'm sorry, we haven't got that as a slide. We might put that, um, we'll take your detail, those details, Alison, that you pop in the chat. We'll put them on a slide and we might just pull yep. off, <clears throat> I think we'll pull off those emails of the pharmacist because that's really just an internal. Oh, yeah, that, sorry, that is just our, that, again, that, that's not relevant for, for this process. That was just our, that's our working document effectively. If this is what we do, just to show people the flow. So that's not Should actually relevant for, for this group specifically. GPs. Okay, yeah. so we might pull yeah. off the ID consultant mobile number as well. Is that right? Because we don't necessarily, you want us to call your GP hotline rather than calling the ID consultant. Is yeah, that I right? think that, but that would be reasonable. There is actually, if you've got a question about someone ring, very reasonable to ring us first and uh, and then we can talk with ID um, on your behalf. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and Alison, of course, um, you know, there's that piece that I'm sure Jeff would want to reinforce too, is that really that patient uh, notifying their positive case puts them through the system. So while um, patients may come to us and haven't actually gone into the um, Department of Health and Trevi system and come out to you guys, um, you know, really that that's the process. I think we we all would prefer. That's right, isn't it? That they absolutely, yeah. And the way the system is working, we get notified within twelve, you know, within twelve hours. It's actually already being processed. So, you know, the, the people that have been referred by a GP, we've actually they've they've logged through the system pretty well sort of 12 hours later. So yeah, okay. it does provide a checkpoint though, if you know, you've know you got someone who is severely immunocompromised that they just can flag it. And certainly where we get a number from our oncology colleagues, but we, and we can sort of get those things underway. Um, but then, you know, they do, if, if they're, if all the steps are followed, it works. So I think if you've got vulnerable patients, making sure you've got a couple of ways of completing the loop is always good. Yeah. So, okay. So, so we don't mind. To, so we're very happy to have the information. Yeah. So just to recap, if uh, you know, thinking about um, both um, Jeff's with Bowen remote patient monitoring and Allison's Ballarat at home, um, those those decision aids. If someone notifies, it goes through to the Department of Health through Trivi. They're sorted and allocated to the those um, hospital services who will be able to put them through the full flow chart of eligibility for Paxlovid, uh, Sotrovimab. And if not, then Melnipiravir might be the thing. However, if they come to us as GPs, it's like we have to try to imagine that algorithm from that face um, and either um, determine whether they're eligible for Melnipiravir, but not the others, in which case proceed, because it's the only one we have access to. Or if we suspect that they're actually eligible for Sotrivimab and Pox, um, or Paxlovid, we're trying to now filter them through to your system using those phone numbers, but also asking the patient to report because that then closes the the loop have I got that right yeah pretty much I, th I think uh, we have to remember there are people involved all the way along and the algorithm doesn't do everything no. so that it's actually people uploading their details so it's in the system but then it's actually well we've got a high risk patient so we want to be able to catch all the high risk people and there are always opportunities for them to be missed so if you've got a high risk person then and and you know about it early very comfortable that you let us know so we can go yep actually we've got them we're, we're all okay um, because yeah, just because the, the we can't always rely entirely on algorithms to get us where we want to be. That's so right. it's and particularly immunocompromised and unvaccinated people, and then and then as you can see, looking from both of our uh, initial. Um, our initial slides, there's a stepwise uh, process of well, eligibility, but also 
a risk and um, hopefully Arvind and Aaron would agree with me on that. So the immunocompromised and the unvaccinated and the older unvaccinated, particularly the people that we want to pick up on. Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. We'll leave it this morning with the PHN update. I'm going to hand over to Linda. Thank you. Thank you, Bianca. <clears throat> Noting that I haven't got any minutes left now. No minutes left. <laughs> I know. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. So sorry. That's Hang right. on the line, peeps. Uh, okay, so just two two quick um, programs of changes that have um, that I wanted to flag with you all. So with the living with COVID funding that we've got, um, we have got a primary home care visit program that's available for for GPs to to have a look at. We did send out um, information later last week, but it's really for um, if you're considering or wanting to do a home visit for any COVID positive patients that you may have, really to support them in their care, whether or not it's COVID related, it may be related to other needs. Um, it also includes uh, visits to aged care facilities and it can be done by practice nurses, nurse practitioners and GPs as well. Um, it's quite, well, the remuneration is $150 per visit, um, $250 if there's travel of an hour or more. Um, if you'd like more information, just give our COVID inquiry email a call in, or an email and we'll um, provide some more uh, program guidance and billing info but it's really straightforward simple um yeah just um just another opportunity it also includes a payment for fit testing and finally just some um an update around um the capacity of our, G our gp respiratory clinics to actually see um respiratory clients for face-to-face -face assess assessments as well as um as testing so it's um just another i guess uh another opportunity um, to support COVID positive patients or suspected COVID positive patients or patients with no GP and with respiratory symptoms as well. Um, you can find the referral information on Health Pathways. So I've got the um, snip, snip there for you to, to have a closer look at, but yeah, just follow the, go to the referral and escalation of care page and you'll um, get down, down to the uh, GP respiratory clinics and the referral requirements there. So that's a really good addition. And finally, there's a couple of opportunities um, around, um, and there's an immunisation update. I think Katrina already put some information about that in the chat earlier today. Um, we don't have the exact details, but there's also a webinar next week about Japanese encephalitis as well by the Victoria Department of Health. So we'll um, send that out to you when we get that information. And we're also sending out, well, actually went out yesterday, but there'll be a health alert going to all practices today around the virus as well. So thank you. Thanks. Thank Bianca. you. Thanks all. Thanks for coming. Thanks um, to Jeff, Alison, Avind, Kate. Uh, send Avind and I a case for next week. Have you seen anything um, wonderful in the immunology realm, a strange reaction to a vaccine or to COVID? Uh, we'd love to bring that into our case discussion. So uh, zoom in on that evaluation. Um, even just drop me a line through that or, or through this email about a case. And Avind, we welcome you back next week for uh, Immunology 101. Thank you. All right. Thanks. 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 All right. See you, everyone. Have a good week. Take care. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network. And you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions. And you'll also receive our resource pack. That includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks, and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.